This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 26, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Republicans again did better than expected in the 2020 election, so once again, we have to ask, how did pollsters get it so wrong? And as importantly, what has to happen for them to get it right? Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. We talked about the theories of why the GOP vote was again predicted poorly. So what do we understand now that we might not have known in December or January? Right. So pollsters are still perplexed. They don't know what happened, why the polls underestimated Trump's support in 2020 and 2016. Um, One thing to know is that it wasn't the polls didn't just underestimate Trump's support, but Republican support across the board. So an example is take Senator Susan Collins in Maine. Not a single public poll um, in the month leading up to the election showed her even in a lead. And she won handily, I think, by eight percentage points. So um, and she's a pretty moderate senator. And so people were saying, what's going on? Are people afraid to say that they're voting for moderate Susan Collins? Um, And so that led a lot of people to say, you know, we just don't know what's going on. And so I wrote an article for 538 recently where I try to examine and explore what I think might be happening. Um, And I think that kind of the shortest way to put it is I think that a lot of Republicans in 2020 just stopped responding to surveys. Not all Republicans, but a certain segment of Republicans, particularly those who are more willing to vote for Donald Trump, were just opting out of surveys. They don't always do this because if you take a look at 2018, the polls did pretty well there. So this this doesn't always happen. But under a certain set of circumstances, I think you get um, some Republicans that just say there's more cost than gain for me participating in a survey and I'm opting out. And so this article tries to explore why I think Republicans are opting out of surveys. Okay. So what are the what are the dominant theories here? Well, so the way I would think about it is that I think there are three factors going on. The first one is that over the past, you know, probably several decades, but particularly the past decade, even before Trump, Republicans have become more distrustful of society and institutions, particularly the media and colleges and universities. So to kind of put this in perspective, in 2010, the Pew Research Center found that a majority, 58% of Republicans, thought that colleges and universities um, were doing good, you know, had positive views of them. By 2017, that dropped to only 24%. Um, we saw something similar happen with media institutions where it was already low in 2010. It was like only 24% of Republicans had positive views of the media back then. But by 2017, that dropped to a dismally low 10%. And when these studies followed up and said, you know, why don't you have confidence in the media or in colleges and universities? The primary reason they gave is bias. They feel like these institutions are politicized. And I also would like to say, I don't think they're all wrong about that. I think that there is quite a bit of empirical evidence that does suggest that there is politicization going on in these institutions. These are knowledge gatekeepers. And if people can't trust knowledge gatekeepers to keep their own personal biases in check and to be neutral arbiters of knowledge, that undermines public confidence in them. And so when you think about who sponsors most of the polls, most of the polls are sponsored by media organizations or colleges and universities. So might it reason that if you think those institutions are biased, might the polls be also? 
So that's, I think, the first factor going into this. The second factor I think that's going on, and this is one that I think is really important for us to be you know, talking about and thinking about, um, to put it bluntly, um, is cancel culture. This, this concern that people will be punished by their peers for their political views. So some survey research that I conducted um, this past year found that an over, you know, a very high majority of, of Americans, 62% of Americans say they have political views they're afraid to share. But Republicans, it was even higher. It was like eight in 10 Republicans are self-censoring their views. The survey delved a little bit deeper and asked if if the person was afraid of being fired from their job or missing out on job opportunities if their political views became known. So that's not just like you're spouting it out at work, perhaps inappropriately, but just someone found out. Um, about a third of Americans are afraid of getting fired or you know missing out on job opportunities because of their political views. But for Republicans, especially college graduates, it just kind of skyrockets. Do you get like almost a majority to 60% of post-grad Republicans saying that they're worried they're going to lose their jobs over their political views? And so that particular segment, I've been paying a lot of attention to. There were quite a few studies that tried to examine, you know, if people are distrustful of pollsters or a little bit reluctant to talk to pollsters, who might that be? That's a very hard question to answer, obviously, because if they're not taking the survey, then they're not taking the survey. But I think for a lot of these people, they occasionally do. They just are just more reluctant to do so. And so we saw a similar picture emerge. For instance, one um, data firm, Republican data firm called On Message, told me that they had found that there was this segment of people who said that they knew someone, quote, knew someone that was voting for Donald Trump, but wouldn't tell anyone that they were going to vote for them. And then if they were prompted, could that describe you? You know, these people said yes. And who was that segment? Uh, more affluent, college-educated suburban Republicans. Another study from Public Opinion Strategies found the same segment. Um, there are several studies that keep finding that the types of people who are a little bit more reluctant to talk about their views tend to be these college-educated suburban Republicans. And that is exactly what we saw on election day, where Republicans, where did they do well, like, or, or better than we had expected, was in these suburban areas. Um, they held on to all their seats in those areas, and they gained, um, I think they flipped 15 and gained 12, primarily in suburban districts, which kind of fits with, with this data. Correct me if I'm wrong. There was a shift in suburban America toward the Democratic candidate. Is that right? It, or, or, so, that so is pol- right. So pollsters just underestimated the degree to which uh, Trump would be receiving support from these educated, uh, rep- uh, largely or better educated Republicans. That's right. So we did see, you know, several important shifts. So, you know, white college educated suburban voters shifted a lot towards Biden overall. And, you know, many Hispanic and Asian American voters shifted towards Trump relative to where they were before. And these are, you know, these are interesting trends. But what I think what happened is that the pollsters overestimated how much of a college educated group, you know, how much that um, group shifted in favor of Biden. Because I think because of that shift, a lot of those Republicans who felt that on balance, the Trump administration policies had done more good than harm, 
we're afraid to, you know, to talk about those things, afraid to engage in it, especially since the the stakes were so high. I mean, polls showed that a, a majority of people in the summer of 2020 um, thought that Donald Trump is a racist. And given those stakes, it's really hard for people to say, well, we'll just agree to disagree. I mean, no, this is about identity. This is about dignity, all these really sensitive issues. And I think that that, that actually, I think, leads us to the third factor that I think is the key here. Because you might be asking, well, why in 2020, in 2016, did the polls underestimate Republicans, but they they seem to do well in 2018 and 2014. And, and, and most polls, you know, most years they do a decent job. Is this really just a Trump effect? And now that he's gone out of the White House, he's not at the top of the ticket. We're not going to have the, you know, the polls aren't going to underestimate um, support again. And I, I think that it's possible, but I think that that's a little bit misguided. And the reason why is I think this is more than a Trump effect. I think that Trump made particular issues salient that are very sensitive. He brought to the forefront issues of identity, immigration, citizenship, race, what it means to be Amer to be an American. And for many people, they have a very hard time talking about those issues. And so for many people, they just say, I'm opting out of this public debate. I'm not going to talk about it. Um, and so they don't talk about it with their friends. And are they going to talk about it with pollsters? Well, Polls are conducted confidentially, but there was one study done that found that there were of the people who were worried about, you know, talking to pollsters about who they were going to vote for. They said they feared that pollsters were not going to keep their answers confidential, because when you think about it, when a pollster calls you on the phone, they have your phone number or if they email you. They have your email address. You know, there's ways of contacting you. And then you tell them who you're voting for. Couldn't they connect that to you? Now, the answer is I am not aware of any situation where a pollster has revealed someone's, you know, vote choice <laughs> based on a poll. But given that the stakes are so high and over the past year, we, you know, a lot of people were fired, even for rather mundane views. People thought, I think, why even engage <laughs> when the the benefit to the person taking the survey is quite low and the potential cost, if it ever got out, is high? I think a lot of them just said, I'm not even going to take the survey. I'm opting out. Or if they did take the survey, they weren't as honest as they would typically be. So you might say, well, what about 2024 or subsequent elections? If Trump isn't on the ballot, will things return to normal? And I think the answer to that is maybe. But I'd like to draw your attention to Brexit. I mean, what are your thoughts when you think about Brexit? Contentious. <laughs> That's right. And, sur and surprising. Surprising, right. So Brexit was also surprising. And Trump had nothing to do with that election. The reason why Brexit was so surprising is that polls had um, had predicted that um, Remain, you know, to stay in the European Union, would kind of win pretty handily. But on election day, not only did it lose, so the people who voted to leave the European U Union won, but they won by four points. That's yeah, that's a fair, that's a pretty solid number. Um, and so what happened there? Well, a lot of research studies have looked into Brexit and what motivated people's votes. And a lot, a lot went into it. But one component that was that played a prominent role were attitudes on immigration. Again, a very sensitive issue. It's hard to talk about that because I think there are good people on both sides of these issues that really do have um, good intentions. And there's some that have bad intentions, right? But it's hard to talk about it in a way that people can feel like 
they can have a productive democratic conversation about it. And something happened in the Brexit vote. So about one week or so before the election, uh, a right-wing extremist murdered a member of parliament, um, in part because of her her, um, beliefs about immigration and, you know, global interconnectedness and so forth. And so many people came to associate that murder with being, you know, in favor of leaving the European Union. And right around that time, surveys and support, you know, the, the support for leave started to decline in surveys. And then on election day, surprise, by four points, Britons voted to leave the European Union. And so some survey research researchers at the time said they thought what might have happened is that people, you know, people who who um, did not want to be associated with that murder, but also had concerns about immigration. They didn't want to be associated with the murder. So they just didn't want to even tell anyone they were voting to leave the European Union. So they were just opting out of the survey. So that's another example of a situation where when people feel like the issues are very sensitive and that their beliefs will be misinterpreted as being nefarious and so forth, they just say, I'm opting out of this public dialogue. (laughs) Um, I think that's what happened in 2020. I think it happened in 2016. And going forward in 2024, if Trump decides to run again, we might have a similar situation happen if the issues that are made salient, which they probably will be, are the same ones from 2020 and, and so forth. But if someone new is on the ballot that's a little bit less polarizing, we're not talking about immigration or identity or race, then I think the polls might return to normal. Donald Trump has this unique capacity to inspire fairly uh, dedicated support and also lower the confidence that his supporters have in these traditional institutions, those that conduct polls. So to the extent that pollsters obviously want to get it right, uh, notwithstanding the claims of the president, of former president, um, what adjustments do they have to make now? Presumably they tried to make adjustments between 2016 and 2020 to, to not much avail. What are they going to do this time? Right. Well, go. you know, after 2016, they thought, oh, the problem was that they didn't survey enough um, Americans without college degrees or what in particular, you know, white working class um, voters. And so that this time around, they really upped that percentage in their samples. So they thought, OK, this time we're good to go. And there were all these you know, articles going into the election saying, oh, no, the, sur- the polls are not underestimating Trump again. No, this time we fixed it. And then. We had something very similar happen, and you know some of the the top researchers in the field, writing for the New York Times and um, Five Thirty Eight, pointed out that a lot of the errors were in the similar direction, similar magnitude, um, very similar to twenty sixteen, and similar part you know regions of the country. And so it seems like it's possible that um, just brand new problems cropped up in twenty twenty because of the pandemic. That's a reasonable argument to make that it's a lot harder to poll during a pandemic where Democrats are more likely to be social distancing at home. Republicans are, you know, more likely to be kind of doing their their typical routines because of how they responded to their concerns or fears about covid nineteen. Um, but I think at some point you have to back up and say, is there really not something bigger going on here? And so what I think pollsters may need to do going forward, and this has been something that David Shore, um, he's a progressive data analyst who's interviewed all the time in the news about these sorts of things, um, is to look at trust. The t- How much trust do the respondents that you're interviewing have? So typically, people that have higher levels of social trust are more likely to take your surveys. In the past, though, there wasn't this 
there wasn't as big of a problem about trust being correlated with who you were going to vote for, it seemed like. Whereas now people who have less social trust, they were more likely to be voting for Donald Trump. And so one of the things that I think pollsters need to look at is what kinds of Republicans are they getting in their surveys? And are they getting these really, really high trust Republicans? Or are they getting an adequate share of Republicans who also have low levels of social trust? Because that has been on the rise. And that is the segment that you know disproportionately supports Donald Trump. So Making So in the survey I, I have in the field right now, we included a question that's a very standard question that social scientists use to measure trust, which is, it's something like, uh, do you think that most people can be trusted or do you think people would take advantage of you if they got the chance? And you look at how people answer those questions and make sure that you're getting you know a more representative sample there. And the way you would do that is that the general social survey is a survey conducted, um, I think, in primarily in person. It's a lot harder for people to opt out of your survey when it's in person because someone's knocking at your door. And so that shows, I think, only about 50% of Americans would be you know, higher on social trust. On a typical survey, though, you get 70% who say that they're high on social trust. So what you'd want to do is make sure you weight your survey to be more reflective of the population as measured by these in-person surveys in which it's a lot harder for people to just say, I opt out because someone's knocking at your door. Um, harder to say no. Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. And now a special thank you to a Cato podcast sponsor, James Gettler. Thank you for your continued support of the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast. Cato's work promoting individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace simply wouldn't be possible without supporters like you. James, again, thank you. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.